Chapter 2. Roadblocks and Barriers to Your Success Again, I've promised you that leadership transformation is simple, not easy. It gets even easier if up front you're aware of the potential roadblocks. There will definitely be roadblocks. After working in the leadership development space for more than 35 years, you see patterns. Success leaves clues, and so do failure and disappointment, with the same roadblocks and barriers surfacing again and again. Now, not every roadblock I'm about to reveal might be true for you. Nothing holds true for every leader, and roadblocks won't appear every time with everyone and everywhere. They do, however, appear with enough predictability and regularity that it's a reasonably safe bet to call them patterns. And they all start with one big pattern or problem. This fascination we all seem to have with choice. It's either this or that, one or the other, A or B. Change or stability, risk or safety. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, bollocks to that. It seems that having to choose is in our DNA. If you're a Matrix fan, it's take the blue pill or the red pill. In Alice in Wonderland, it's Alice's question to the Cheshire Cat, which road do I take? Humour is even based on this. If you're a Monty Python fan, you know the big question, crucifixion or freedom? In my own business, business coaches have told me that I either sell services or sell products. But why one or the other? Why not both? Well, here's the solution. Refuse to choose. The choice dilemma was beautifully picked up in Dr. Jim Collins' research in Built to Last, where he articulated that poor leaders deliberate and pontificate over what seems to be diametrically opposed options, this or that. It often leads to real stress and poor performance. He called this the tyranny of the oar, that is the logical view that cannot easily accept the paradox of not being able to live with two seemingly contradictory ideas at the same time. So many times I hear in service firms, look, I either do my billings or I serve my clients. Gong, as the beautiful Robin Williams would say, thank you for playing. Refuse to choose. Rather than thinking one or the other, you creatively combine both options. I believe it was Jim Collins who coined the alternative phrase, the genius of the and, rather than the tyranny of the or. This and that. So what are the choices leaders grapple with as leaders? Choices that require an and mindset, not an or mindset. The three choices. There are three big choices that I see leaders struggle with at times at a conscious level and sometimes unconscious, and that stunt their development and success. Do you recognize yourself in any of them? Choice one, skills or passion. Choice two, results or people. Choice three, work or life. Yep, the old work-life balance furphy. Let's look at these in more detail and show why choosing doesn't help you and actually detracts you from your leadership brilliance. Choice one, skills or passion. There's a real problem in a lot of leadership development activities. I've fallen for it myself as a coach, trainer, and facilitator over the years. We teach people skills. What? Yep, we teach people skills. You say, but surely isn't this what they want? Isn't this what they need? Well, sort of, but it's only half the story. It's a sin to send a changed person back to an unchanged environment. 
I can't believe how many leaders I've sent back into their corporate worlds with the four steps for this, the five steps for that, and the seven steps for the other. Hey, nothing wrong with skills, of course. But imagine this. Your manager's just returned from leadership development school and learnt the seven-step delegation process. Now she's going to go through it with you no matter what. So don't interrupt. Can you see the problem? We think the skill steps are the answer. The more military precision we can do them with, the better. Often it's because the other person needs to improve her performance, her responsibility, or her urgency. In fact, in some way, you're going to teach them a lesson. But let me assure you, if it's just the skill steps you deliver, it will be you who will be less on. You need to also connect to your heartfelt intention. Or as my good mate Steve Cumulus from Vivid Math says, you need to be more on as a leader. The skills will get us the results, but of course they're only half the story. You're not a robot, and neither is the person in front of you. Leadership is about a relationship, the one you're in right now. Use the skills as a platform, as a guide. Remember that you're talking with a real person. You can't just go through the motions. You need to relate and connect with them. Be more on. Let yourself come through. At the Human Enterprise, we deliver a Blessing White program called Why Should Anyone Be Led By You? What It Takes to Become an Authentic Leader. In it, Professor Goffey and Jones articulate this idea of being on as be yourself more with skill. Get it? The more of yourself is your passion, your emotions, your values, and with skill, well, that's your behavior. But don't get too cocky. In our transformational leadership coaching, we not only focus on the behavioral change of the leader, their outer game, but also their mindset, their beliefs, their shadow, or the things that could be sabotaging their success. This is what Timothy Galway refers to as the inner game in his book, The Inner Game of Golf. The very opposite side of this is true as well. If the leader thinks it's going to be all about the relationships, the feelings, the connections between us, or the vibe of the thing, then you also have a potential problem. Vital as this is, as honourable an intention it upholds, it can also cause a lot of damage. Can you imagine someone with a wonderful, loving, giving, generous intention and an unbelievable passion about to do open-heart surgery on you? But what if he or she has no skills? Uh Uh-oh, dangerous. This is the choice many leaders think they have to make. They say, that's just who I am. I just want to be myself. I just want to be me. I don't want to come across as phony. I could never follow a strict formula. It's just not me. Well, let me let you into a secret. The skills don't freeze you. The skills freeze you. In other words, they don't stop you in your tracks they actually allow you to be more of yourself. There's no better evidence of this than in the sporting arena. For example, a tennis player may perfect a certain stroke after hours and years of practice so much that she doesn't even have to think about it anymore. It's unconscious. This is the old 10,000 hours rule. It allows the conscious mind to focus on all the other elements that are present in order to not just execute the shot, but plan it perfectly in relation to all the other elements that are happening, the wind, the opponent's weakness, the next shot. We need to know the skills backwards 
and then add our passion. But there's a problem if we just choose one or the other. It's a bit like this. Skills minus passion equals a lack of impact. Passion minus skills equals a lack of focus. If you focus solely on developing your skills and not on developing your passion by being true to you, showing enough of yourself and really connecting, then you'll never quite make the impact you're capable of. No impact, no results, no progress for you or the organization, no better place to which you're taking people. On the other hand, if it's all about you, your passion, your commitment, your unbridled enthusiasm, without the skills, the personal control, and a more systematic, considered approach, let's face it, you're everywhere. No focus, no clarity, no progress for you or the organization, no better place to which you're taking people. How do you do both? We'll get to that later. But for now, refuse to choose. Choice two, results or people. I'm an easygoing bloke. I'm chilled and I'm laid back most of the time. But this one is giving me a dose of it. It's unbelievable that we still seem to have to make the case for employee engagement, even with very senior leaders. Despite literally hundreds of research papers, some managers still don't get the engagement equation. Admittedly, they may have been burnt because engagement is a necessary but not sufficient condition for great performance. In other words, we can all be engaged, but that doesn't mean that we are necessarily going to produce excellent results over time. But here's the rub. Try getting consistent, excellent results over time without engagement. Look at it this way. Full engagement doesn't necessarily lead to a great result, but a lack of engagement certainly leads to a poor one. One of my favorite equations is the following. Great leadership leads to a a great culture, which leads to great engagement, which leads to great results. By all means, do your engagement surveys. But let me assure you that engagement is an emotion, not a number. If you want more emotion and more feelings in your business, it starts with you. It takes what US Navy SEALs Jocko Willink and Leif Basin call extreme ownership. If you want your followers to emotionally connect with what they are doing, then first connect with your own emotions, your personal energy and your ability to energize. On the other hand, many organizations have taken up the engagement torch and have summed up their aspirations and ambitions for their people as the ABC company, a great place to work. There's no way I want to detract from that. What a great ambition and a brilliant way to help create the human enterprise. But I'll never forget a presentation by the one-time CEO of an international IT organization in Australia. It was a big guy with a deep voice. He had no fuss, was to the point, and had a thick Scottish accent. He also had two big dogs. He spoke to the leadership cohort I was working with and beautifully summed up his thoughts on engagement. A great place to work, he said in a drawn-out breath. I'll tell you what a great place to work is. A great place to work is a profitable one. Try working at one that ain't. If you've been around the block a bit, you'll know exactly what he means. Profit is the fuel for growth, both for the growth of the business and the people that work there. Yet at an unconscious level, leaders still feel that they must choose between focusing on results or focusing on people. It's a mistake I made as a young teacher early in my career. I was determined to get close to the year 11 and year 12 students. Call me Mitch. 
I remember saying, thinking this would show that I was one of them, but they didn't want me to be one of them. They wanted me to be a teacher with all the stuff that came with it. They wanted me to lead. I could imagine what they were thinking. Here we go again, another try-hard, come-in spinner. I so wanted to be their friend, wanted to be accepted, that I forgot what I was there for. This doesn't mean we don't work with people in a respectful manner. It means if your need to be accepted is greater than your need for results, then you've got a real problem. As a leader, being liked is a bonus. Being respected is essential. This is why so many new leaders struggle when first placed in a leadership role, like me as a newbie school teacher. For Pete's sake, I was only four years older than most of my students, and quite frankly, I identified more with them than with most of the Bermuda-panted, long-socked, hush-puppy-wearing, middle-aged teachers in the staff room. By the way, I soon began to dress like this as well. Never underestimate the power and influence of the environment you're in. But that's for another day. Unless he is very self-aware, a new supervisor, particularly if he's promoted internally, may want to stay a member of the gang that he was recently a part of, the gang from which he was promoted. He desperately tries to avoid conflict to keep the peace and to avoid performance issues or potential discomfort. It's about relationships. The fear of rejection is stronger than the flame of results. My take on it is this. Keep putting relationships ahead of results, and pretty soon you'll have none of both. Sure, we're all happy campers, working dry cleaning hours, in by nine, out by five, but what if the results are not there? Eventually, costs will have to be cut, and often the first thing to go is people. So in some ways, when leaders don't make the tough calls from a long-term perspective, you could easily argue that they don't really care about the people. All they really care about is not feeling guilty, feeling judged and not being liked. I call it being too N-I-C-E, nice. Nothing inside cares enough. If you really cared, you'd give the feedback to help the other person grow. Don't be so arrogant that you think people can't take your feedback or that they have stopped learning. How dare you deny someone of their growth? No, we need to go from nice cultures to Real cultures, R-E-A-L cultures, recognize everyone's ability to learn. Then there's the other side of it, the manager who wants results and that's it. No time for the niceties, the process, the relationships. Show me the money, as the film Jerry Maguire says. John Cleese was even cruder in his film about performance appraisal feedback when describing results-orientated leaders. Apologies to all those expecting, but he said, Don't tell me about the labor pains, show me the baby. Many of the leaders I coach often come with this extreme results focus. They've been amazingly successful with brilliant technical results and have been promoted because of these results. But now it's time for a bigger role and their sponsors can see a major problem mounting on the horizon. They write people off too quickly. Their mantra is, I don't tolerate fools too gladly. For them, the good performers, the smart ones, they're great, no trouble at all. But they quickly write off the performers that in their eyes are too slow. The trouble with that view is that no one is a great performer all the time. And people often need time and feedback and coaching, relationship focus, to improve. Keep writing people off, there'll be no one left. 
The key to great relationship then is making relationships and results count. That's why we call it the human enterprise. Great relationships, but never at the expense of results. And great results, but never at the expense of great relationships. It's more than a bet each way. It's the bet. It's not Mitch or Deborah, my wife. That's not the marriage. There are two elements of the marriage. It's Mitch and Deb together make the marriage. It's the marriage of relationships and results that the leader is after. Although many books have been written with the theme of people who feel good about themselves produce good results, I can tell you it's essential to also remember that the opposite is also true. And as one of Mitchell's laws, people who produce good results feel good about themselves. Again, it's about people and results. Fess up. If you're too much of a softy to nice, then you need to toughen up. Push for those results. Get real. If you're too results-orientated, suffering from the cannibal syndrome, fed up with people, then chill, relax, and stop judging everyone around you as less than. Just remember the old standard evergreen definition of leadership, getting results through people. Choice three, work or life. A master in the art of living draws no distinction between his work and his play, his mind and his body, his education and his recreation. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence through whatever he is doing and leaves others to determine whether he is working or playing. To himself, he always seems to be doing both. James Missioner. I think the quote from Missioner says it all. No doubt you've heard the expression work-life balance many times before, and it's particularly relevant if you visited some so-called third world countries. When most people do, they're often blown away by the juxtaposition of levels of having and levels of happiness. Through our first world lens, you'll often hear the expression, these people have absolutely nothing, but they're so happy. Dig a little deeper and you'll find a pattern. It's a pattern I see with the most successful and happy leaders I work with. They don't delineate between work and life. They simply live. It's all life to them. But why do we insist on balance? Think about this. If you're doing something you loved, mixing with great people and making a difference and feeling really fulfilled, where's the imbalance? My point is the work-life balance protagonists have swallowed another furphy without realizing it. It's the assumption on the extreme that work is crap and that you need a break from it to balance out the horror. All work and no play makes Jack or Jill a dull boy or girl. Well, what if you love your work? What then? Now, I'm not saying spend all your time at work. Far from it. I realize we have family and friends, and I'm a huge believer in spending as much time with them as possible. But I am saying that work can be fun. In fact, if it's not fun, is it worth it? Another of Mitchell's laws is the purpose of business is to give us more life, not to suck the life out of us. A lot of my time spent coaching leaders, particularly senior leaders, is trying to shake this paradigm. I think because they are senior leaders, they have to put in the hours. They have to make their sacrifices. They have to suck it up, have to be so bloody serious. But often they're miserable as hell. Even worse, their whole identity is around their job. And what's left when that goes? A big, ugly, black hole. 
that some may call depression. How different would it be if they willingly choose to occasionally put in the hours, didn't see the extra effort as a sacrifice, and were in awe of their work and the people around them? See yourself as a servant to some bigger cause, some bigger meaning. Make it your quest to take people to a better place. Learn to love your work and see it as a part of your life, not separate from it. Or if you can't love your work, don't accept that it's just the way it is. Do something about it. Please, please don't spend your life's energy doing something you don't like with people you don't like, feeling that you don't make a difference. Life is far too short. If you see your work as part of your life, you'll also see your role as a leader as part of your life. You'll get the importance of leading in all aspects of your life. The mindset of simultaneously achieving success and significance will open up endless possibilities of purposeful potential. You will truly become a leader for life. Make your magnificent work part of your magnificent life. Make it about the integration of work and life, not the balance of it. Go for work-life harmony. I've mentioned it a few times, and you may be scratching your head and thinking, what's a leader for life? Let me explain exactly what I mean. 